Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Some days it seems we're holding our breath, waiting for news of another shooting at a school or crowded public place. The United States is the only country where mass shootings are a regular occurrence. It's a tragedy that's also affected Native nations directly. If there were a solution, it would have happened by now. We'll get perspectives on continued gun violence and ways to talk about it to children and others to promote healing and understanding. That's coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Three South Dakota agencies have violated the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. That's the opinion released last week in response to a lawsuit filed by the Rosebud and Oglala Sioux tribes. A federal district judge found that the Secretary of State, the Department of Social Services, and the Department of Public Safety all failed to uphold the law designed to make it simpler for people to register to vote. Victoria Wicks reports. When the Native American Rights Fund filed this lawsuit in September 2020, then-NARF attorney Natalie Landris said the complaint focused on a complex law with a simple purpose. It's supposed to be easy to register, and it's supposed to be offered to you when you interact with the state at a number of different points. Landris said in 2004, when the state followed federal law, 7,000 voter registration applications originated from public agencies. But 12 years later, that number dropped to 1,100 when the state no longer complied. As a result, you're seeing a significant decline in voter registration in South Dakota. In his recent opinion, Federal District Judge Lawrence Pearsall found that South Dakota's Departments of Social Services and Public Safety both violated federal law in several ways. One example is that agencies asked applicants to opt in for voter registration assistance, but they are required to offer those services routinely unless the client wants to opt out. Another example, if someone does not have a Social Security number, a state ID card, or a driver's license, state agencies are required to assign a voter identification number. Instead, state employees were sending those clients to the county auditor, even in rural areas and in Indian country, where it might be a long trip to the county seat. Judge Pearsall placed the blame for these and other problems mainly on the Secretary of State, in this case, Steve Barnett. The judge noted that Barnett chairs the State Board of Elections and is responsible for enforcing the federal act. He said Barnett had failed to provide proper training and oversight and had given out inaccurate information to state employees. Judge Pearsall did not grant summary judgment to the plaintiffs on certain factual matters where witnesses need to be called and evidence presented. Those issues can continue to be litigated. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. The Biden administration has released a new tool for tribes to help them navigate investments in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Officials from the Departments of Health and Human Services, Environmental Protection Agency, Interior Department, and the White House announced the Tribal Playbook Tuesday during a press call. The playbook is intended to help tribal governments access benefits from the infrastructure law, which includes more than $13 billion for Indian country. Brian Newland, Assistant Secretary for Indian 
Indian Affairs says the Bureau of Indian Affairs sought feedback from tribes. Newland says tribal leaders expressed a need for more information for funding, capacity building, technical assistance, and speeding up the permitting process. He says along with the playbook, the BIA is expanding its work to help tribes. We're creating an infrastructure law interagency coordinated coordinating position here within Indian Affairs at the Department of the Interior so that we can help Indian country navigate these resources. And we've issued a national policy memo directing the Bureau of Indian Affairs to prioritize permitting for any infrastructure projects uh, so that these critical dollars can reach Indian country as quickly as possible. Infrastructure law investments for the Interior Department include funding for water rights settlements, dam safety, climate change, and orphaned wells. Funding for other agencies address transportation, sanitation, broadband, drinking water, and other areas. The Tribal Playbook can be found online at build.gov. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're all still reeling from last week's murder of 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Ten days earlier, an avowed white supremacist killed 10 people and injured three others at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. The nonprofit Gun Violence Archive cites 213 mass shootings so far in 2022. The organization defines a mass shooting as an event where four or more people are killed by gun violence. On the show today, we hope to have a constructive dialogue about mass shootings and how everyday people can maintain some optimism and sense of hopefulness, even as we wait on the inevitable news of another senseless act of violence. It's a sensitive topic that we're discussing today, so I want to give out the National Suicide Hotline number in case people out there need to talk. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. If you want to share your perspectives on the recent tragedies, you can join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. Dr. Mark Standing Eagle Bays is speaking with us today from Bemidji, Minnesota, where he is an assistant professor of counseling and clinical psychology at Bemidji State University. He is Mohawk, Pawnee, Qualitecan, and Mexican. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Dr. Bays. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be back. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And Dr. Bays, we last had you on the show back in 2014 after that horrible Marysville High School shooting. 
And sadly, there have been many more mass shootings in the U.S. since then, Uvalde last week being the latest. And I think what so many of us struggle with is how to make sense of something that defies everything we think we know about logic, rational behavior, common sense. So please start us off by helping us put this all into perspective. Can you do that for us, Dr. Bays? Sure. Just to begin with that, uh, you know, there's no words to describe the horrific massacre uh, in Uvalde, Texas. You know, uh, as practitioners and psychologists, it's it, it can be difficult for us uh, to even navigate through tragedies when we are also uh, just trying to hold it together uh, while supporting uh, colleagues, uh, messaging other families, uh, monitoring students' behavior for signs of distress. Uh, but looking at everything as a whole, uh, survivors um, come from nearly every race, religion, and socioeconomic background, you know, living otherwise normal lives, uh, such as Uvalde, Texas, Parkland, Florida, Aurora, Colorado, uh, even up here in, in Red Lake, uh, Minnesota. But it just seems so um, uh, scary, just the thought of something like this uh, happening um, and those towns and uh, or names who have become etched uh, in our minds. You know, although mass shootings account, right, for only a tiny fraction of the county's guns death, um, uh, they're uniquely disturbing because they happen without warning uh, in, in most routine places, schools, churches, office buildings, concert venues, and what you just, as you just mentioned, even in uh, a grocery store. Um, but by definition, mass shootings are, are more likely to trigger uh, difficulties with beliefs uh, that most of us have, including that we live in just a world um, and that if we make good decisions, we'll be safe, right? Uh, but mm -hmm. most survivors show resilience for the most part, but others, particularly those who believe their lives uh, or the lives of the loved ones were in danger or who lack social support, experience ongoing mental health problems, including post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, uh, and substance abuse. What's critical uh, is to ensure that victims feel connected to their communities in the aftermath of mass violence uh, and that they have ongoing support available to them. Uh, memorial events, particularly those uh, that are student and community uh, initiated and or led are most helpful uh, to survivors in terms of recovering from a mass violent uh, event. Uh, these events include candlelight vigils or a night after the tragedy uh, and or a memorial where thousands of community members and sufferers join together uh, to remember the victims of such an event. It certainly is, and I'm glad you talk about the the ongoing support, the need for recovery, the candlelight vigils, the community gatherings and so forth. And just watching some of the reports from Uvalde, I heard some of the families saying, well, right now we feel like we're okay because there's so much media here, there's so much attention, there's so many events and there's so much support going on. But what we're worried about is when all the cameras leave and everybody goes home and then we're just stuck here alone again. And what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Bays? Because recovery can take months, it can take years. It, it, some people might argue somebody never fully recovers from something like this. So how can these communities and how can we ensure or protect our communities or provide some sort of resource resources available so that 
communities have the ongoing support that they're going to need after a huge, huge tragedy like this? It's, you, may, you mentioned something that's really key in that uh, it needs to be ongoing. The continuity needs to be there for healing. Uh, and as you mentioned, not everybody heals uh, at the same time. Um, healing is, is very um, specific to every person and how they heal and how long they heal. But if the community can provide those ongoing support services, ongoing uh, for the students, the, the community, the families, knowing that they are going to be there. And you're absolutely right. Right now, they feel strengthened because of the community, uh, even the media coming and saying, we're here for you. And then everyone packs up and leaves. And then they are there left to heal alone uh, with um, the ongoing support is to let uh, the, the individuals, the children, the families, the community, that we are here to heal together. It's going to be extremely difficult, but if we do this together, uh, then we will get through it uh, together. Uh, so having um, provide uh, providing some uh, strategies for for the parents to help themselves, they then can help their children, uh, and some suggestions for parents uh, speaking to children about traumatic. Uh, events is something that I wanted to share um, with with the audience and with you a little bit later or or whenever you would like for me to share that. Okay. Yeah, I would like you to share that. I, I do want to talk more about the children, though, because that's what this event and, and Sandy Hook that occurred in, in Connecticut and some of these other horrible incidents really underscore is sometimes the victims are just so young. And, and talking about it from a mental health perspective, you being a mental health specialist, uh, I think we're all just so worried about children right now and trauma from going to school and, and caring for their mental health. So um, how, how do you approach that with children this young having to go through such a, such a horrible ordeal? I often find... Uh, that adults do not want to talk to children about upsetting events because of the fear that it will simply upset them. But not saying anything to their children is exactly the wrong thing to say. And what I mean by that is how do we talk to children about events such as this, the, the mass shootings? The first thing is recognize that you should talk to them about traumatic events. Children will often... Uh, have heard about this through social media, uh, public media, overheard conversations. And we want children to know that we're an accurate source of information and that we are ready to help them understand and cope uh, with what's occurred. So for young children, you need to inform them. Um, and older children, you should start by asking them what they've already heard, because chances are that they probably heard it before you did. Um, and then you need to ask them uh, what they are concerned about. And it's important not to assume that children's worries are the same as our worries as adults. Uh, they often have very different concerns, fears, and skepticisms. So we need to ask people what they're worried before we try to reassure them. Don't minimize the distress uh, that they have. Don't tell them that they shouldn't be worried. Um, uh, if they are worried, they are worried. Instead, we need to help them uh, understand how to cope uh, with their distressing feelings rather than pretend 
they don't have them, and so we shouldn't talk to them about it. Uh, then keep the conversation open and be physically present and emotionally present with them so when they are ready to continue that conversation, you can continue to answer their questions and provide support. So lastly, don't try to hide your distress, meaning as an adult, don't try to hide your distress. If this is bothering you because it's a, an upsetting event, let them know that you are impacted by it as well. Uh, but use this as an opportunity to share how to cope with it. If we pretend, you know, uh, that we're not upset, like, oh, I'm good, everything's all right, children pick up on that. Um, and then, and they know that it's not genuine and they will not end up speaking to us about these types of events. But if we share with them that we too are impacted, uh, but that is what we are trying to deal with these feelings, then we are modeling effective coping strategies. And that uh, is what we need to help them with. So we need to be there as, as modeling for them that it does impact me. I am human. So by minimizing and just um, dismissing their feelings doesn't validate what they're going through. So having that, that, that conversation is critical uh, to, to, um, to our children so that they okay. learn that, you know, I'm hurting too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, don't avoid the conversation. Don't minimize it. I, and I would imagine that if we do that and our children just don't feel comfortable talking about it, it just festers and those fears and those concerns only grow. So we're going to talk more with Dr. Bays after our break, but we do have to take a short break. Anyone with a question or a comment on today's show, please give us a call 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Performer Wayne Newton's talent has earned him the nicknames Mr. Las Vegas, Mr. Entertainment, and the Midnight Idol, among others. He's also a strong advocate for the Potawomac tribe in Virginia. And I'm Melissa London, and I'll be talking to Wayne Newton up close and personal on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about mass shootings today. We also want to hear about how you cope with the constant flood of information about another mass shooting that seems to happen too frequently. If you have a comment or question, you can reach us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I also want to give out the number for the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. And we're speaking with Dr. Mark Standing Eagle Bays. And Dr. Bays, um, before we went to break, you were talking about how it's important to, to have these discussions, as difficult as they are, 
have them with children, even young children. Don't dismiss, don't ignore uh, the gravity of, of these incidents. But I also want to ask you, because as a parent myself, I know more than anything else that young children look to their parents as as protectors. And the reality is we can't always protect our children, can we? So how do we tell them that as part of this larger dialogue about these incidents, about this gun violence or these other shootings? At the heart of it is the fact that we can't always protect young people. So again, how do you have that conversation or should we even bother having that conversation with young children? It's in, it's important to um, to have a healthy, first and foremost, a healthy communication with our children to let them know that we are, are doing everything we can as parents to make sure that they are safe uh, and continue to build on that, not just say it, that we need to act on it. So the accountability as parents uh, is to look at what resources are available in the community and the lack of could be an opportunity for our voices to be heard on some ideas, ideas and or strategies uh, for families that need uh, support uh, in those areas. Uh, in regards to uh, letting our children know that, that, that this is a life and to talk about dangers uh, in life, I also believe that that also is important. And of course, it would be the degree of information that you disseminate to your child based on their age. Uh, they may not understand and we don't, uh, we definitely do not want to have that conversation with, with young children where they do not understand. But if we can at least inform them of the uh, healthy choices versus unhealthy choices, uh, what we can provide for them, where they need to go if they get in trouble or if someone's hurt, what they can do. But uh, it's important that we also need to let them know that that uh, things may happen to be careful, to be cautious, not to uh, take everything from granted and just say, oh, everything is free, go ahead and do whatever you want, nothing's ever going to happen. So uh, as Indigenous people, I know our teachings are as, as handing down uh, that recipe of survival that is successful for them to be successful. So uh, as, as Indigenous people and resilient as we are, uh, we're here because our ancestors have paved that way, and, and it wasn't always uh, a safe place. So we continue to provide those stories to help them empower themselves and continue to make those healthy choices. So you're right. Children and even teenagers often turn to parents and relatives and teachers for comfort and guidance um, during times uh, of distress. So when we come together um, as, as a team, if you will, uh, promoting life, promoting wellness, uh, we're on that right path uh, for success for our people. Okay. And it seems as though every generation has to deal with some type of inherent violent threat. I mean, I look back to kids that grew up in the 60s and there was the whole nuclear attack risk and they would do drills in schools. And then I think for people of my generation, in the 70s and the 80s, serial killers were on everyone's mind. And there was a lot of concern over that. I know in my community, there was a serial killers that frighteningly was on the loose for a number of years. And uh, this millennium, it's these active shooter drills. Um, so it's just so horrible. But uh, let's bring another guest into the conversation now, joining us from Salt River, 
Pima, Maricopa Indian Reservation in Arizona is Lynette Stant. She is a third grade teacher at Salt River Elementary School and the 2020 Arizona Teacher of the Year. She is Danae. Lynette, welcome back to our show and congratulations on your award. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Now, Lynette, you've been a classroom teacher for 18 years, and I think back, Columbine occurred in 1999, and that really kind of just got everybody really galvanized about these issues with gun violence in school. So you've really experienced your entire career under this shadow. And I want to ask you, Lynette, to what extent does the risk of a mass shooting cross your mind each day when you enter your classroom and you face your students? It crosses my mind every single day. When I'm driving to work, I go through, uh, I mentally prepare myself. Where is my flashlight? Where is my uh, tool to break windows? Do I have my carpet ready? Is my cabinet unlocked that, that provides these tools for me? I mentally walk through that every single day. And since you've been teaching now almost 20 years, um, has has the concern, the fear, the precaution, has it increased over the years as these events continue to accumulate? You know, when I was a young teacher, um, they didn't prepare us in college to to address mass shootings in the classroom. And so all of this training that we received as educators here in Salt River actually came from the police department. They, you know, prepared us. Um, giving us active shooter training. And so what I know now as a teacher really has been through uh, professional development in collaboration with the community police department. Now you teach third grade. So your students are about eight or nine years old, close in age to these kids in Uvalde. So what do you tell your own students after something this horrific? Uvalde definitely really hit hard for me because I saw the faces of my students in those uh, 19 children. And, you know, two of my best friends teach fourth grade and I saw their faces as well. You know, Uvalde was a small indigenous community as well. And so it really it really hit hard. I literally had to pull off the road and have a breakdown because when is it going to stop? And so I, fortunately our students were on break already when this happened, but yesterday they came back for summer school and I did see them and I saw it in their writing and their journal writing is school a safe place for me. And so those are the questions that we have to um, address with students. Yeah, I can only imagine how difficult that is. And Lynette, you talked about the police training that you folks have had. And um, there at Salt River Elementary School, what types of policies are there that are in place to protect against a shooting like what happened there in Uvalde? Um. It's not necessarily policy, it's rather preparing teachers. You know, we do practice lockdown safety um, periodically in our school, and we get feedback on how we did. You know, when they do an all call, all clear, our teachers opening their door, or, you know, we get feedback so that we can improve our practice. 
you know, my goal every single day is that each child goes home to their parent. And so, um, you know, again, we may not be practicing a physical lockdown situation, but I am running mentally through the scenario through my mind every single day as I drive home, which has changed. You know, when I first became a teacher, my drive to work was, okay, today I'm teaching fractions and I know so-and-so isn't getting it. How can I change my instruction to address his need? Now it's like, okay, I'm mentally preparing myself in my classroom, doing a visual walkthrough, a mental walkthrough of my classroom of where things are, where, where I've placed things in case I need it. And now are, are, are younger teachers that are coming up, are they getting more of this training that wasn't available when you were in college? You know, it's hard for me to speak about what the university is teaching. However, new teachers to our school um, are definitely getting that training. Okay. We've got a caller on the line, Brian, listening on KUNM in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Brian, you're on the air. Hi, good, uh, good morning. I think it's morning here still and from Santa Fe. How are you guys doing? Doing great, Brian. What's on your mind? Well, uh, actually, one of the main things that I was, uh, I'm still dealing with is uh, my kids. Uh, one of them is in elementary. The other one is, is in high school. Of course, um, we heard the news of what happened in Texas. Uh, I actually live uh, very close to that area in San Antonio back, back then, and I do have friends in that town. Um, I'm actually dealing with talking to my little one. Um, he is in the first grade. Um, so it's kind of, um, in a way it does register to him that these, these things do happen, but it kind of doesn't seem really real to him where my son, the oldest has, has seen numerous, uh, articles of school shooting growing up and he's in high school. So he understands the situation. Um, he understands you know, we always bring it up, and I think uh, you're right that he is, he does see our reaction to it, the parents, how we react to his safety and his safety of his little brother. And I think it's something that maybe a lot of Native Americans need to understand that your kids do learn off of their parents, their behavior. If their parents are not taking things a little bit seriously, then they won't take it seriously as well, too. And this is a serious situation he understands it is serious and and it kind of when columbine happened back when i was in high school we heard about it it was scary but um we kind of looked to our elders or to our parents for guidance and a lot of them they kind of brush it off as something that only happened in the city and will never happen on the reservation and something something like that never really will occur here or maybe they some of them were worried about um, how movies and video games played a role and they kind of played off of that as well too where the blame went into that area of course the matrix they during columbine that we weren't uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> some uh, parents weren't allowed to see that or we're black or all sorts of things that kind of okay they threw the blame off um but in high school uh it did happen and I remember being on the Napa Reservation and a kid did bring a gun to school. Um, but I remember in the library after school hours, we have this after hour study time and one of the 
friend, not a friend of mine, but a kid I knew, showed me that he had a gun in his backpack. Um, luckily, nothing really, nothing happened. But being that, you know, it wasn't so important. Gun was part of our cinema, was part of culture, and it wasn't really a main issue. This was before Columbine, but, you know, I just played off like, don't show me that. Just put it away, and we continue with okay. our day. But it's stuff like that can happen, you know, anywhere. And yeah, yeah, it, it, it certainly can. And um, I, I think that's what's really been underscored in recent years is that no community is immune. I mean, even, you know, Littleton, Colorado, which is an upper middle class community, um, Newtown, Connecticut, where Sandy Hook Elementary, that's, I mean, one of the wealthiest communities uh, in the state of Connecticut and has one of the lowest poverty rates in the whole United States. So it, it, I think that's why everybody's just on such high alert. It, it impacts everybody, every American, regardless of, of race, regardless of creed. Uh, it's just so all-encompassing. And Dr. Bays, earlier you mentioned that you have resources available to help Native American families cope. Can you share some of that information now? Sure, absolutely. Specifically for uh, the indigenous uh, population uh, that I work with uh, throughout the United States um, um, and, and, and in Canada, um, even in Australia, there's one specifically for the United States. It's uh, the Native Center for Behavioral Health uh, at the University of Iowa College of Public Health, uh, and it has a wealth of resources, uh, and the center focuses specifically on serving uh, American Indian and Alaska Native children and families um, and, and their communities. Specifically, uh, the resources are from trauma, K through 12 mental health, and substance use disorder prevention intervention. And what is really, um, I feel they not only have the, the resources, um, they are a resource of culturally informed prevention intervention practices uh, that support behavioral health professionals, educators, community, uh, parents across Indian country. So it's it's tailored for indigenous people. A lot of the uh, individuals that are disseminating the information uh, are are indigenous people, uh, and it's just it's a very very uh, wonderful and, and powerful tool. But the other is SAMHSA. It's a substance abuse and mental health service administration that you go on the, the websites. It's great with um, um, with the public. Uh, the Iowa, excuse me, the University of Iowa College of Public Health. There's a link. Uh, it's https uh, colon okay. forward slash. You know what, Doctor Bays? I, we, we can go ahead and we can go ahead and just put these resources on our website if that would be helpful. If you want to share those with our producer. Yeah, we'll just go ahead and do that. And uh, I want to ask Lynette, because earlier we were talking, Lynette, primarily about your students, third graders, but um, how about their parents and grandparents? Are you having discussions with with their caretakers as well and their their guardians and their parents? You know, like like I had said earlier, this happened during the week when we were on a break. So I have not had a chance to reconnect with my family. Um, and, 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 and see how they're doing. However, I think one of the things that Dr. Bates um, really uh, resonated is the fact that we focus on the social emotional wellness of students. And in our school, um, we've really taken that stand that we are going to really, you know, ensure that our students are, um, that we're recognizing their social emotional growth. 
And so as teachers, you know, we really ensure that our, our classrooms are a place, a safe haven for them so that they can feel whatever they need to feel and that we as teachers are prepared to walk them through some big emotions that they have. And it may not necessarily be about school shootings. It could be something that happened in their home, domestic violence, substance abuse, um, uh, being transitioned from one place to the next. And so, you know, our students, our indigenous students are feeling those big feelings. And so our classrooms have become a safe haven for them. And, and recognizing that school may be the safest place for them to be. And so when things like this happen, like the school, the mass shootings, it really, kids question that, is school really a safe place for me? And so as an adult, recognizing their feelings and, and what they're scared about and being honest, because kids pick up so easily when, when, when you're lying to them. Absolutely. Listeners, if you have a question or a comment for today's show, 1-800-996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling, and we will be right back after this break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the longstanding issue of mass shootings. Please note that this is a sensitive topic for some, and we want to be mindful of the recent tragedies that have occurred. You can join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Joining us now from Cattaraugus Territory is Leslie Logan. She is a founding member of the Mothers of the Seneca Nation and is a contributing writer for Indian Country Today. She is Seneca. Leslie, you've been on the show before. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Leslie, the shooting in Buffalo last month, that occurred near your home. And unlike some of the other shootings we've talked about today, it was specifically motivated by race. How do those two facts, proximity and racism, affect your reaction to that violence? Um, well, I just want to start by saying that, um, you know, I appreciate um, uh, the the um, previous guests that are, uh, and what they have to offer on the subject. This is really a difficult one, particularly one that um, pertains to children and what happened at Uvalde, but I come at the discussion from a, a, a relatively uh, different place and perspective. Uvalde and the Buffalo shooting are two very different incidences, and they stem from different places. The Buffalo shooting was a racially motivated hate crime. And what concerns me with this is that <clears throat> whether we're ready as a country and, and even within our local communities and institutions to do the hard work of grappling with racism. And, and that's, a big, that's a big thing, right? Because we can, uh, we can talk and, and, and there is dialogue that is absolutely needed, right? Um, but, but what is that dialogue going to consist of? Um, not only is the healing needed, 
absolutely is a healing unit, but following the healing, questions arise as to, I think, on the part of those affected communities, um, and in Buffalo, it's a black community, but it also really extends to uh, and includes uh, vulnerable indigenous communities. And, and so then you ask, you know, uh, what is the level of commitment on the part of the greater mainstream society, on our institutions, and in our communities, and what is the level of trust? Um, because we're really very all uh, affected by this, whether we like it or not. Talk is good. Dialogue is great. Uh, being heard is needed. But there must be some action. There must be some changes that speak to the how and the why, how these per pernicious forms of racism are allowed to take hold, how they're promoted, you know, by so-called trusted sources. Uh, such as those in the media, people in power, people in Congress, Fox News, crazy school board members, you know, it goes on and on. I mean, we just, we, we got it coming from so many which ways that it seems to me uh, that there there needs to be a, an, uh, you talk about ongoing healing, there needs to be ongoing dialogue to really address the roots of racism. That's what I see. Mm -hmm. Leslie, how far do you live from that Buffalo shooting? So we're about 40 minutes south of Buffalo, um, and in Western New York, we have uh, four, really five different um, uh, indigenous communities. We have the Tonawanda Nation, uh, the, the Tuscarora Nation that's north in um, near Niagara Falls, and then in the southern tier, there is the Tarragas and the Allegheny Territories, which are both part of the Seneca Nation. But then you have a whole host of um, indigenous people who are living in the city of Buffalo. So that's why I say we have, you know, five uh, native-based communities in the area with about 15,000 or so native people um, in the area. Okay, okay. And a big issue to come out of this Buffalo shooting is this whole idea of replacement theory, right? This shooter prescribed to this ideology called replacement theory, um, how do Native people fit into that racist perspective that this shooter was so was so consumed with? Uh, this is really just, um, I don't even know what to call it, just uh, craziness. So this replacement theory is a radical right theory that, that's pushed by people on the right, um, like Fox News' uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, New York State Representative Elise Stefanik has promoted this idea, and this is a, a theory that's based in fear, and it maintains, um, uh, you know, or it seeks to maintain white supremacist uh, power. And the fear is that migrants, Jews, brown and black people, are, because they're growing in population um, and entering the country, will replace white people and their reign on power. Um, and what's what's nutty about this, right, is that it ignores the basic historic fact that the Tucker Carlson's of the world and the Elise Stefanik's of the world and the shooter, that their ancestors were all perpetrators of an invasion of the first peoples. They were the first, their ancestors were the first invaders and themselves exerted a manifest destiny replacement theory policy in the United States to wipe out indigenous people. So that's a real problem, right? And so 
I feel what we need to do, you know, since these things aren't really so much even radical right, um, you know, we, we've got a congresswoman in upstate New York who's pushing this back pretty proudly. And, and this 18-year-old shooter in his creed, uh, 180 pages, proudly called himself a white supremacist, an anti-Semite. Uh, Semite. And um, I think what we really need to step back and do is, is put racism on the examination table and really look at it and dissect the roots of racism and acknowledge it for uh, in all of its pernicious forms, not just, you know, because it comes at the hands of a shooter, but it also comes, you know, from people in power who are controlling the news, who are wielding pens, who are holding gavels and making, um, you know, decisions in our court systems, like in Oklahoma against Native people. I mean, it's, it's okay. everywhere, and, and we need to talk about this, and we need to talk about it seriously. Okay. Let's take another call. We have Gordon listening on KOJB in Red Lake, Minnesota. Gordon, thanks for calling the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I just wanted to uh, uh, say when the shooting happened in Red Lake, the uh, there, uh, after the shooting, there was some of the uh, parents from Columbine came up to Red Lake to try to talk with the parents of some of the victims in Red Lake to try to help them deal with this. And one thing that I got out of what they were saying was they were so grateful that being that Red Lake's a closed reservation, when the news media got to Red Lake, the tribe wouldn't let them just go around into the community and just start interviewing people and buying information and pictures and yearbooks and things like that. They made them stay at the uh, justice system, uh, the justice uh, uh, complex in, in a parking lot, and they couldn't move. They could drive out the state highway, which runs across the reservation, but they couldn't get off the highway and go and start bothering people. And the people from Columbine said that that was so wonderful that they saw we had the power to do that, that they wish they could have done that in Columbine because of how rampant the media was uh, pestering the victims and their families. And I'm sure that the same thing is going on in Uvalde because of, you know, the, for the very same reasons. But I just wanted to say that, that sometimes the media needs to be held in check and I'm not ba I'm not bad mouthing it, but at certain times they just need to leave the victims alone for a while. If they want to come talk, they'll come talk. That's what they could do in Red Lake. They could go up to the justice center and and talk with the news media if they wanted to. Otherwise, leave them alone. And the news media wanted to sue Red Lake, and the, the people told them, "Well, you can go ahead and sue. You're going to lose. The federal judge will just throw it right out because that's their land. That's that's their laws." And, and so they were so upset and they were so angry, you know, and they were, they did, a couple of them did file lawsuits, but they never could get anything done. So, the, but I thought it was pretty nice for those people from Columbine who had experienced that already came and they thought that was such a cool thing to just hold the media in check for a while till everybody can kind of digest what had happened. It, you know, it doesn't go away after a few days at all no. and I, I know this from personal experience being in trauma myself so that happened on my birthday <laughs> so anyway, oh my I gosh. just wanted to I just wanted to say that and uh, just let the people know that there's still some good out there and we can still kind of keep the truth coming and we don't have to go pester these people they're, they're hurt and you don't need to be Gordon. opening their wounds 
Gordon, thank you. Thank you for calling and sharing that story, that information. As Native people, we all watched in horror back in 2005 when when the tragedy that you mentioned occurred there in your community, Red Lake, Minnesota, uh, ultimately claiming 10 lives, including the life of the shooter. And we actually did a show here on Native America Calling earlier this year that dealt with that very topic that you mentioned of how do families deal with the media in the event that a, a tragedy occurs like this. And we had some really interesting guests in Canada who have experience with that, uh, having lost a, a, a victim, a family member to a violent crime and, and how to keep the media at bay, like you mentioned, because as we all know, they can just completely kind of take over, hijack a story in a community, in a situation like that. So really appreciate your call there, Gordon, and, and giving that background there up in Red Lake. And let's go back to Leslie now. And Leslie, you wrote an op-ed in Indian Country Today that that uh, explained a lot of what you've shared here on the show with regard to replacement theory and your concerns about racism not being addressed properly in the United States. And Leslie, in addition to that op-ed, what are you doing to raise awareness of racially motivated gun violence and other hate crimes? Well, I think, you know, it's really kind of pulling it way back and really talking about examining uh, what the media is doing, um, how we're portrayed, how we're marginalized, what kind of loaded and antagonistic language um, that the media is using against Native peoples. You know, in many cases, um, our, our stories, our, our issues may be highly contentious. But the media will either omit things or they're just, they will um, outright distort and, and um, you know, conflate issues um, and don't cover us properly. Uh, so what we've been doing here in Western New York to address this, this um, overt racism and antagonism um, in fighting uh, with our largest local newspaper in all of Western New York uh, is uh, we've been, well, we had a, a writer let letter writing campaign from the mothers of the nation but we've also finally really kind of had enough is enough uh, we were seeing um, in the past just six months but it's been going on for 10 years that our local paper Little Buffalo News uh, will uh, really attack and antagonize and use all of this highly loaded charged language calling us you know weasels and greedy and um, infantilized us, um, I mean, really kind of bad faith actors, um, and this has been going on for a very long time. So we finally had enough, and we sat down, we called a meeting with them, and uh, a group of about, I guess, six or seven of uh, the mothers of the nation went and met with them and called them on it and said, you know, ultimately, you can disagree with us, um, and, and, and we can disagree with each other, but there has to be respect. And, and that the media is at least supposed to be, and, and it's, you know, most basic foundational elements, it's supposed to be fair, and it's supposed to be balanced. And so we've essentially demanded that there be more fair and balanced reporting. We don't see stories about residential schools covered, and Ketaragas, we have the Thomas Indian School right here on our own territory. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women. They don't talk about um, in any great detail, the, the water issues up in Tuscarora, um, you know, who, who lack clean drinking water, um, just miles away from the freshest, largest water, natural water resources in, in all of the um, United States, possibly. 
there are a lot of issues, you know, that that um, I think as Native people, we just need to confront and we need to challenge the media and we need to demand better. Um, and, and that's what I see. And, but you need to look at the portrayals. You need to look at the language that they're using. And we need to just really kind of um, buckle down and, and take them on, take them head on and, and say, no more. We're not going to stand for this anymore. And Leslie, where can our listeners learn more about Mothers of the Seneca Nation? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, we're in the process of establishing a website. So uh, we'll hope to get that up in, I would say, probably the next 30 days or so. Uh, but we've been around since uh, really forever. The, the Mothers of the Nation were a constitutionally provided entity in the 1848 Constitution. And uh, today we see ourselves as a check and balance in our governance structure and, uh, you know, ensuring that we're looking out for um, our uh, assets and protection of our, our natural wealth, which is basically our future and our children. Okay. Well, folks, we are going to have to wrap up our show here in just a short while, but I do want to give um, Lynette just one opportunity to give us the last word. And Lynette, uh, we got about 30 seconds. If you could um, communicate with any of those families there in Uvalde, uh, what would you tell them? My heart goes out to them. Um, I, as a teacher, I, I, I am lost for words. I'm still processing my own grief about it, but I want them, I want the families to know that every single teacher across our country is standing with them. Okay. Well, thank you for those words. We have now reached the end of the hour, and I would also like to thank all of our guests, Dr. Mark Standing Eagle Bays, Lynette Stant, and Leslie Logan for an informative hour and discussion. Join us tomorrow to hear an interview with legendary performer Wayne Newton in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant, clinical, Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application can be made in three easy steps. More info and application at online.nmhu.edu. Changachit, Hinangaka Hakatunaka, Chachikai Tutunaka, CMSAT Ikayut Kank to Tringalate Mood Suit Kaitnik, Unomuk Imirikina, Kanshutki Muzvik Michalil Ranashan Rit of Zare Kuvit, Pakluku Healthcare dot gov, Kasukayaga Luku one eight Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.